It's on page 1059 of the Pew Bibles. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because he, they saw the signs that he was doing on the, doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are, we, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were heated. He also... So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that had been done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Lord, we just ask that you'd help uh, our pastor to uh, um, just open the word and share with us what uh, deep truths you have hidden in these words that seem pretty straightforward, but um, it, there's so much more. Your word goes very deep. So we just pray that you'd uh, and just put the words on our pastor's uh, mouth to speak and our ears to hear. We thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Morning, church. No, we are not going back in the Gospel of John to chapter 6. There's a reason why I had Dave read that for us this morning. Uh, the office can be dismissed. Uh, we'll be in John 21 this morning in our time, verses 1 through 14, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Uh, real quick, a couple of just announcement updates. If your ladies are interested in joining Bunko, you don't have to email her or fill out the evite. You can even just tell her today. They just want to make sure they have enough uh, goodies and treats for everybody who does come. And I just wanted to throw out, if anybody doesn't have anywhere to go on Thanksgiving, uh, maybe you're a law student and you're stuck here in town or you don't have family or you just want to have a friend, come over to our house. Just let us know. We have, we'll have plenty of food. You can join us uh, with our family. We would love that. Um, so as you're in John 21, I have a few questions as we start our time this morning. After the Titanic sank, what do you think the second officer, his name is Charles Herbert Lighttoller, the most senior officer who was the one to, or to survive, what do you think he did for work? 
after Blockbuster went broke, what about John Antiaco? He's the CEO who refused or actually was denied the purchase of Netflix. What do you think he did for work? Or the IT guy in 2013 who lost a thumb drive with 7,500 Bitcoin on them, worth at the time only $1,000, today worth $135 million. What do you think he does? Do you think he's a security officer at an IT company anymore? I think the common denominator in all of this is that these men failed. Initially, I'm sure they weren't trusted very much. Some probably didn't even trust themselves. Guy probably didn't go and drive a ship for a while, or he probably wasn't entrusted to run a company, or he probably is still looking for that thumb drive even today. And so the question I want you to consider as we jump into John 21 is, do your failures make you hesitant to trust Jesus? He won't trust me. I've betrayed him. I've denied him. I've failed him. He would never hire me. He doesn't want me. Do you think your failures make Jesus hesitant to want you, to welcome you in? As my friend Jeff reminded us last week, as we took some time in Romans 8, in Jesus, you are never condemned. And in Jesus, you are always loved. And it connects to our passage this morning. And so let me read our passage this morning. In John 21, 1 to 14, and we'll break this down. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into a boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came into the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And altogether there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us in this text this morning. God, would you help us to behold marvelous things in your word. God, we thank you that you, your grace is greater than our sin, that your mercy is more, and that we can come to you just as we are. And you receive us. 
Would you help us to worship you this morning? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so these failures, these disciples, they go to Galilee. They leave Jerusalem and Jesus meets them there and he cares for them. Because in Jesus we are never condemned. We are always loved. And our main point this morning is that Jesus reveals himself to us so that we will throw ourselves towards him because he will never cast us away. And so chapter 20 ended where the disciples are seeing and perceiving and seeing this resurrected Lord that they had with their own eyes, believing facts about him, about the resurrection. And chapter 21 ends up being an epilogue or a conclusion to this entire book. That's why we went back to chapter 6 and we read that passage. And so there's going to be a lot of themes this morning that we've seen throughout our study in the Gospel of John that help to illuminate some of the things in our text this morning. And so John 21 is the conclusion. It's the epilogue of this gospel by way of illustration for you and I today. And so let's look at that first section again. Verse 1 gives us a geographical location, a sea of Tiberias. Verse 2 gives us a list of some disciples. And verse 3 says what they're doing, or rather what they're not doing. They're not catching any fish. So verse 1 picks up a time marker. It says, after this, after Passover, the Jews would celebrate a week-long festival of a feast of unleavened bread. After this festival, the disciples, they go home to Galilee. They're actually following what Jesus told them to do in the Gospel of Matthew. Go to Galilee. Does that ring a bell, though, from our scripture reading this morning? Let me read John 6, 1 as you're looking at John 20, verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And so as readers, we are to connect the dots to what we've already seen Jesus do in chapter 6. Where the Sea of Galilee is the Roman name for this, or I'm sorry, the Sea of Tiberias is the Roman name for the Sea of Galilee. And John 6 is where Jesus revealed himself to the disciples as God, the one who would meet their greatest needs. Jesus himself ultimately would be that greatest need. And Jesus himself reveals himself again in John 21. And he reveals himself to seven disciples. First is Peter, the leader, the example. They must like Peter around, right? He's the one that always asks the questions, that always gets his foot stuck in his mouth. Maybe like an older sibling would say to the younger sibling, hey, can you go ask mom and dad if we can have dessert before dinner? You know, they, they don't want to ask themselves, but they send somebody else. So Peter is first. He's the example. He's the leader. Peter is the denier. Second is Thomas. You might recall from chapter 20, Thomas is the doubter. Thomas doubted the resurrection after chapter, or in chapter 20. I won't believe until I put my hands in his, or my finger in his hand, my finger in his side. The denier leads, and then there's the doubter. And to be a good Baptist, I have to alliterate. And so next we have Nathaniel, the debater. We haven't seen Nathaniel since chapter 1 in the prologue, the introduction. In John 1, Jesus called Peter, Andrew, and then Philip, and this happened in John 1, verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said, Come and see. 
Philip calls Nathanael to come and see as Jesus reveals himself throughout this entire gospel. Nathanael the debater is third in the list. And John adds some other details about Nathanael that we didn't have at the beginning of the gospel. That Nathanael is from Cana in Galilee. Nazareth is where Jesus is from. It's only four miles from Cana. Can anything good from good come from maybe East Randolph, if we were to ask that question today? None of them are here to defend themselves, but I, you know I'm joking. We know them. Nathaniel knows Nazareth. Galilee would be like a region of central Vermont. Most importantly, though, Nathaniel is from where? Small village of Cana. And John 2, where Jesus performed his first sign, where he turned water into wine, was in the village of Cana, where the, Jesus showed himself as the Messiah, where this abundance of blessing would come through him, pointing and looking forward to his hour on the cross. And John said this after this miracle, as John is being the author of this gospel. He adds this commentary. He says, this is the first of his signs Jesus did in Cana, in Galilee. And manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And guess what? The same word in, in chapter 21 where Jesus revealed himself is the same word that John uses in chapter 2 as he manifested. It's the same word. And so your English translations are actually not helping you see these connections here. There's a lot of connections this morning. Helps us understand what's going on in John chapter 21. And so the denier, the debater, and the doubter are with four more disciples. Two brothers, the sons of Zebedee. This is John, the gospel writer, and James, his brother. James would actually be the leader of the Jerusalem church. In the books of Acts, we see that. They would come and they would follow. And the text says that there's two more disciples. Was it Matthew? Was it Andrew? Was it somebody else? We don't know the name of that, those two other disciples. And it's not because they don't matter, but it's because the event had seven disciples. And seven means something, right? We've seen that over and over again in the Gospel of John. And the focus, though, is on these first three, the denier, the debater, and the doubter, with Peter being the leader. And John showed us seven signs, yet there were many more. He recorded seven I am statements, seven names of Jesus, although there are many other names of Jesus in this gospel. And he says there are seven disciples, although we know there are more. And so I think these seven disciples, they come together to represent the entirety of the disciples, the 11 who are remaining, but also all of us, all disciples, you and I here today in this church and all churches in God's church. And so the officer, the CEO, and the IT are God's, all together with four other people, and they're not going to start up a company. They're not doing anything, but they say they're going to go fishing. The Titanic officer, though, is not allowed to drive the boat. Peter initiates, and they follow. They go back to their normal, everyday life in Galilee. It's what they knew. It's probably what I would do. Fear of failure is one of my greatest fears. I love being here in Vermont, and I still fear that I will fail you as this, at this church. What would I do? I go back to California? Absolutely not. I do not want to go back there. But I assume fear of failure, embarrassment, being fully known, plagues many of us in this room. But in Jesus, we are never condemned. In Jesus, we are always loved. 
Jesus reveals himself to us in this way so that we will throw ourselves to him because he will never cast us away. So these guys are terrible fishermen. Jesus knows their confusion, their fear, their failure. One of my favorite professors who is an expert in the disciples, especially Peter in seminary, he would always tell us in the class, he'd say, leave my boys alone. We beat up the disciples, don't we? We look at this, we read the text, these guys are so dumb. Why would he say it to leave them alone? Because we are just like them. We doubt, we fail, we deny, we debate, and we do so much more. So that's the setting this morning. Let's look at verses 4 to 8 and see how Jesus reveals himself even further. Remember John 6. This is where we get a lot of those um, correlations. And so Jesus appears, tells them what to do. They catch a lot of fish, and Peter throws himself into the sea. Verse 4, it sets the stage. It says, Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. It's morning. Fishermen, they would go out fishing at night so that they could have a fresh catch and they would go sell it at the market the next day. But as readers, we are to recall back in chapter 20, where in the early morning, Mary would go to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body. And here, it's not the angel that's there as Jesus is risen. It's Jesus himself greeting the disciples. The resurrected Lord is there present. It's himself. And in John, when we see night shift to day, we see truth is revealed. We see sin is exposed as Jesus reveals himself. Where we've walked all around the house at night, right? And we catch the corner of the table with our pinky toe. And it's the worst and most intense pain, I think, in this world. Sorry, ladies. I think it is. <laughs> Light protects our toes, but it also protects our souls. The prologue said in John 1, 4-5, And Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The prologue, the introduction, connects to the epilogue, the conclusion. And we'll see this more and more. And Jesus, from shore, he yells out to them. He says, Hey, children, you got any fish? I know from my children, most children don't even like to be reminded that they're children, let alone adults don't like to be reminded and called children. And although Jesus should mock them for their inability to catch any fish, he is not mocking them. We've seen this term before in the prologue, John 1, 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. As he reveals himself, as he calls them children, he calls the debater, the doubter, the denier children, hinting to the fact that they are children of God. And so he says, throw your net on the right side. This is my right, your left, on the right side of the boat. Imagine these guys, they're out all night and they're like, who is this guy? He doesn't even have a fish finder. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's on the shore. And why they listen to this stranger is a mystery. But they cast the net. And there's so many fish, they couldn't haul it in. And in chapter 6, with five loaves and two fish, there were 12 full baskets. After he fed about 20,000 people, there was an abundance of leftovers. And here, we see an abundance of grace that comes from Jesus. A net full of fish that is too many to count. 
Some of you may be thinking of Jesus' words in Matthew where he calls the disciples to become fishers of men. But as readers of John, we are not to focus on the disciples and the calling of people to himself. We are to focus on Jesus. We focus on the casting, not on the catching. Remember the context of John 6. After that miracle in John 6, 37, Jesus says that all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So what does he cast? What does Jesus cast? He says this, the, the ruler of this world in John 20, or 12, verse 31, he says, now is the judgment of this world. Where now will the ruler of this world be cast out? And so those seven disciples representing all disciples are like the fish, but it's about Jesus, not us. He's got the disciples. He holds on to them. John 1.16, once again, the prologue connecting to the epilogue. An abundance of fish from Jesus, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. There's an abundance of blessing and grace as he holds us tight. And John knows who's on the shore. We see that, right, in verse 7. And who does John tell? Peter, the leader, the example. And the rest of the chapter will focus on Peter. John leans over, maybe, with a smile. He says, hey, Peter. John, who was in the garden with Peter when Peter denied Jesus three times, he leans over. It's the Lord. It's the I am. It's the word made flesh. It's Yahweh, the covenant keeping God of the Bible who always keeps his promises. Peter, it's him. He's there. In John 6, after Jesus fed the 5,000, the crowd wanted to make and take Jesus by force and put him on the throne. But now the disciples understand that Jesus is truly ruling. He is truly Lord. And when things got hard for the disciples and many turned away, Peter was the one who proclaimed in John 6, 68, after all these events, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter knows where he should go. To the one who has the words of eternal life. And so he gets dressed and he throws himself into the sea. The word there for throwing is himself is this Greek word called balo. It's the same word John uses of Jesus saying to cast the net, to balo the net on the right side. All whom the Father gives to Jesus will come to him. He will never ekbalo or cast out. Peter bellows himself toward Jesus because Jesus will never cast Peter away. The denier, representing all disciples, doubters, debaters included, throws himself towards Jesus. Peter needed to get dressed first. Technically, it says Peter was naked, not just stripped for work. I'm sure the alphas, if they were still in here, would have loved that one. But in Scripture, when the term naked is used, it's offered referring to shame. Where Adam and Eve were in the garden, and after they sinned, they did what? They hid themselves in their shame because they were naked, Genesis says. John knew Peter needed to go to Jesus. Peter got dressed representing all disciples where we approach Jesus still covering our shame. 
But Jesus reveals himself to us in this way so that we will throw ourselves to him because he will never cast us away. It gets more exciting. Look at verses 9 to 14. What awaits the disciples arriving on the shore was Peter and Jesus by a charcoal fire. John makes sure we know it's a charcoal fire for a reason. Not because it's sugaring season. Not because there's no hardwoods to keep your house warm. The term is used only one other time in the entire New Testament. John and Peter have been by a charcoal fire before. It's used in the Gospel of John in chapter 18. Now the servants and officers made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. It's where he gets the name denier because right after this he denies Jesus three times. The excitement is mounting, but Jesus is ready. He's got the same breakfast ready for them that was supper when he fed the 5,000 of bread and fish. The disciples' true need is Jesus, the bread of life. And Peter represents all disciples as the leader to come to Jesus, even in our sins, after we believed and received the resurrected Lord. The first charcoal fire was at night. The second charcoal fire was during the, day, the, during the day. The first charcoal fire, Peter was comforting himself and getting warm. The second charcoal fire, Jesus was comforting Peter. Jesus tells the disciples, bring some fish. And who does the work? Peter does. He's leading. Think there's a connection? I think there is. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. That word, the Greek word for the Father drawing people, el kuo, is the same word that Peter is used of as hauling the fish. Peter pulls the fish ashore to Jesus. The Father draws people to Jesus. Those whom the Father draws to Jesus, Jesus will raise up on the last day. And guess what? It's the last chapter of the Gospel of John. It's the last day of events that John is recording. Peter's an example for all disciples where we will be raised up on the last day. Where Peter is acting like the Father, drawing fish to the Son. And John records 153 fish. No more, no less. Seems kind of random, doesn't it? It's not a secret number, although many scholars have tried to come up with some great conclusions of what the 153 fish mean. They're probably just counting them before they go and send them off to the market. But what this does show is that John is an eyewitness. John says he counted 153 fish. Last year at our house, we hit a low of negative 33. I took a picture of it. I posted it on social media. I have it. I know. I saw it. It is true. I'm an eyewitness, and I recorded it. And so John recorded as an eyewitness that he saw the fish, 153 of them, and the net didn't tear. Some of you know of a line in your home, maybe, or in a business around here when Irene hit. I don't. I wasn't here. If I said that it was about halfway up that hillside, or maybe it was just a trickle on the road underneath the interstate, some of you would correct me because you were there. You saw it. I would trust your understanding. You would not trust my understanding of it. But you can trust John. He was there, not just for the catching of the fish, but he was there at the resurrection as well. 
And so Jesus says in verse 12, he says, come and have breakfast. And they're quiet. They know who he is. They don't want to question it. They know what he has done. They know that he is the I am, the miracle worker, the word made flesh, that he was buried, that he raised from the dead. And so they are silent. And this is how Jesus reveals himself. And we as readers are to connect back again to chapter 1. When Jesus called his first disciples, he called two brothers who were disciples of John the Baptist. And right after John the Baptist proclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, these two brothers started following Jesus. And they asked the teacher that day where he was going. And Jesus' response to them was, Come and see. So they followed. John 1.40 says that it was Andrew and his brother Peter. And Andrew, sorry, Andrew went and told Peter this, We have found the Messiah. And not long after this, Philip was called, and then Philip called Nathaniel the debater. Philip's response to Nathaniel's debate was, Come and see. Come see Jesus revealed. And for 20 chapters, we have seen Jesus revealed throughout this whole gospel where Jesus reveals himself to us so that we will throw ourselves to him because he will never cast us away. And this come and see perception and reality language is all over this gospel. See why I was so excited for Jeff's message last week and how it connects to our time this week. It will also connect to our time next week. For those in Christ, we are never condemned. For those in Christ, we are always loved. And verse 14 reminds the reader, it's the third time that Jesus revealed himself after raising from the dead. Chapter 18, Jesus affirmed his identity three times as the I am. Chapters 18 and 19, Pilate affirms that Jesus is innocent three times. Three times in chapter 19, Peter denied Jesus. Now three times after the resurrection, Jesus reveals himself to the disciples. And next week, we'll see Peter get restored by Jesus. What's your guess on how many times? Three times. There are no regrets in Jesus. Throw yourself to Jesus. He will never cast you away. So I think there's three ways that we can apply this text this morning for us here in this room. First, I think, is personally. Maybe you feel like Peter, Thomas, or Nathaniel. We've said things we shouldn't say. We've done things we shouldn't do. We've looked at things we shouldn't look at. We've felt things in our heart that we shouldn't have felt. We've all sinned against a holy God, and we've betrayed Him. We've made mistakes and we've failed in the eyes of God. And we've failed God even after we believed in the resurrection. While acknowledging that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, having life in His name. And friends, we need reminders of the gospel ourselves. Where Jesus reveals Himself through His word. And where else shall we go for eternal life? And so friend, go to Jesus. In Jesus, we are never condemned. In Jesus, we are always loved. And this is not license to sin, for he died for those sins as well. But going to Jesus is freedom to cast yourself towards him, to allow him to embrace you, to forgive you, to be comforted by him. And if you're not a Christian even this morning, you should do that for the first time. In Jesus, we are never condemned. In Jesus, we are always loved. And so believe in the gospel, believer and unbeliever. The good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. 
we should personally apply this text. Second, I think we should apply this like a good friend, John. Representing all disciples, these seven men, doubters, deniers, debaters, all included, are shown a model to follow in the one Jesus loved. John, he loved Peter. He fulfilled the law. We're around deniers, doubters, debaters all the time. If not, we are the deniers, doubters, and debaters. So if I ask you to raise your hand, don't do it. The honest ones would say that, yep, that's me. And those who don't raise their hand, you would by default become the one who is denying things. You who are strong, brothers and sisters, encourage those who are in sin to go to Jesus. We're all stronger than someone. We're all weaker than someone. We don't need to beat each other up. The world does a great job of doing that already. We can call sin, sin, but we send sinners to Jesus, even in the church. Jesus said this in John 13, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It wouldn't have been loving for John to just slip out the side of the boat, swim underwater, and go meet Jesus himself alone. He sends Peter. It's loving to correct each other. It's loving to come alongside each other. It's loving to remind each other of who we are in Jesus and what he has done for us. And it's loving to point each other to Jesus and call each other to repentance. It's the most simple way to love our neighbor as ourself. Love others as yourself because we need the same encouragement. For those who love Jesus, we should want to direct each other towards Jesus when we, they falter. Loving others as you love yourself because we would want others to do that to us in the process when we fail. John knows he's a sinner. He doesn't say he's the one Jesus loves because he's the lovely one. He uses the term, the one Jesus loved, because that's the term that we all are referenced as, who trust and love Jesus. It's not because we're lovely on our own. It's because Jesus makes us lovely. So personally apply this text. In relationship, apply this text. And third, I think together as a church, we can apply this text. Remember, it's all about Jesus. But the disciples brought the fish to Jesus, where individuals make up a group of disciples, and we call that a church. John wrote this so that you may believe. He wrote this so I may believe. He wrote this so that we might believe, and so that others may believe as well. John 10, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. He doesn't just say he will never cast us away. He says he will hold us tight. Where the net doesn't tear, he will hold us fast. We as disciples and sheep become the voice of the shepherd, the voice of Jesus, and also the hands of Jesus hauling the fish in. To love fishing, you must love casting. Or fishing is just a waste of time on a boat. 
Peter is the example to follow personally. John is the example to follow in relationship. The other five disciples are to follow corporately. We don't even know who four of them are or two of them are. Jesus' voice is heard in our world today through the church speaking His word, opening our mouth, and Lord willing, through our faithful proclamation of the gospel, more a large haul of fish will be brought in, even here at Cornerstone. Bring people to Jesus. Be the voice to them. In Jesus, we are never condemned. In Jesus, we are always loved. And so throw yourself toward Jesus. He will never cast you out. He will hold you fast. And so as I close in prayer, I wanted to read John 15, verses 1 through 11 as an encouragement. If you want to turn there, I'm going to read it. Use it as a guide to pray, because I think this connects as well to our time this morning. John 15, verses 1 through 11. Jesus said, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that did not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burn. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And so, Father, we acknowledge that apart from you, we can do nothing. Like the disciples couldn't catch fish, God, we need your help for everything. God, we thank you that you are the vine, your Father is the vine dresser. God, we thank you that you call us to bear fruit and you make it possible. And so help us to abide in you and your Son. Help us to bear fruit. God, help us to abide in your words, for they contain eternal life. Help us to abide in your love, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever should believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God, help us to realize that you have the words of eternal life, and that is where we find our greatest joy and where you get the greatest amount of glory. So be honored in the rest of our time as we sing songs in response to your wondrous word as you've revealed yourself to us. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.